0: Again the reading is Genesis chapter fourteen. In the days of Amraphel, King of Shinar, Arioch, King of Elisar, Cadalomar, King of Elam, and Tidal, King of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, King of Sodom, Bersha, King of Gomorrah, Shinab, King of Adma. Shemebar, Adma, Shep, excuse me, Shemebar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Cadaloomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cadaloomar. And the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavei Kirithim, and the Horites in their hill country of Sayir as far as Al-Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined the battle in the valley of Siddim with Kadalamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, son of Abram's brother, Who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house three hundred and eighteen of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Cateleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Ashkol, and Mamre take their share. This is God's word for us today.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. I'm actually gonna preach from the gospel of Matthew. I just wanted to hear you. Just wanted to hear you say all those names. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, help us to quiet our hearts now to see what it is you have for us in these words. As complex as what we've just read, it seems to be. Yet I do trust that the deeper and the closer we look, there is a great confidence for us to be had in these words, a confidence that will shape and even change the way we leave, the way we engage in the world around us, and even the way that we go about pursuing you by a whole different kind of power. Give us the eyes to see that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this week, I googled civil war. There's two words, civil war. And uh, here are some of the news stories that came up in just the first page. You'll notice they're kind of, it's almost like they're arguing with one another. Uh, the first one, New York Times, opinion. Is the U.S. on the verge of a civil war? The Guardian. No, America is not on the brink of a civil war. Uh Business Insider. Civil War experts see, quote, indicators that the U.S. is on the brink of conflict. I was trying to figure out what happened in the 1800s, okay? <laughs> um, so uh, that if you read any news these days, you will probably hear about threats to our democracy. And depending on what news sources you read, those threats are probably very different, which I think illustrates the point. No one seems particularly confident that we will ever have another uncontested election. In a recent address reflecting on the January 6th insurrection, President Biden said, quote, I will allow no one to place a dagger at the throat of our democracy. Those are alarming words to hear from a sitting U.S. president. Meanwhile, as we shift our attention to the world scene, Russia is amassing thousands of troops on the border of Ukraine as Western leaders all around the world are trying to figure out the appropriate response. Now listen, I'm not trying to be alarmist here. I'm I'm actually just describing a few things that are pretty prominent in the news. Um, The truth is war is, at the very least, on our minds these days. And as our world is rapidly changing in almost every way, technologically and socially and economically and morally even, it is not hard to imagine the possibility of war. Now, for most of us, that's pretty shocking. It's even terrifying. It's kind of hard for me in some ways to, to be standing up here even just imagine saying that with a straight face, meaning it. Uh, For many Christians in particular, this has been stretching us. It's been forcing us to ask some very deep and hard questions. How should we engage in a world like this one? What place, if any, do we have in all of this conflict and, and tension? And what would victory even look like if we were to find ourselves in the midst of war? Last week, Lot chose to dwell, if you'll remember, in the land of Sodom because it, quote, looked like the garden of the Lord. Uh, this week, as soon as he ventures off in that direction, we sort of turn the page on this chapter, and it's like we are in the middle of a war movie. <laughs> All-out war has broken out. All the raging nations that were scattered just Two chapters ago in Genesis in that Tower of Babel, they start to do what they do best. They start to rage. And Lot is swept up in the chaos of their sin until Abram hears of his capture and leads a small platoon in this amazing victory. For centuries, this story and many other stories like it in the scriptures have pointed us to many important truths about war and the chaos of sin in a fallen world. We we see in the scriptures that war is is destructive and dark. It's, It's the result of sin. It can be traced back to the fall. And until God's redemptive work is done, unfortunately, war will be, at least to some extent, inevitable. But in these verses, God wants us To gain a certain confidence, even in the face of utter chaos and war. We're going to see this is an ancient confidence uh, that his people have enjoyed in every age. See, the truth is, God's people have been finding victory in the chaos of war for a long, long time, but it has not always looked the way you might expect it to look. And my hope. is that we would see what that victory does look like and most importantly, where that victory comes from. So with that, Bible's open. Uh, Let's take a look at this complex story and and what we're going to try and do is try to understand the timeless theological truth that is here for us today. What God is trying to get done in us through this story. First, you probably notice it's very easy to get lost in the politics of this story. Uh, who was fighting who for what reasons? There's a great deal that I could say about that. But ultimately, I think we are supposed to just catch on to a few important details. First is that this is a very extensive war. This is not just a little skirmish between a couple groups. Um, this is all war in the region. involves many nations with all kinds of entangling alliances. More importantly, as soon as Lot chose this Jordan Valley, as soon as he ignored the invisible spiritual quality of what was going on there, right away, as soon as he goes, those nations erupt in war. That's not supposed to be lost on us, right? That was a bad decision. Uh, That backfired. He immediately regretted it. In particular, In this battle, Sodom and a few of their allies tried to step in to stop an enemy who was fighting war against another group, but they were quickly defeated in the process. And in that process, Lot is basically taken captive along with his possessions. Now, that's a really important detail. Uh, Not much, frankly, has happened in this story. We're just a few chapters in. We're just getting started. But already God has promised to bless Abram and his descendants to make them a great nation. And already he has made both Abram and Lot rich. He has blessed them with possessions. Last week we saw that the reason Lot separated from Abram was because they were so rich that there was not enough room in the land for them both to dwell there. And so pay attention Pay attention to possessions and riches throughout this passage because they are meant to be a reminder of this theme of God's blessing. And in particular, everything that happens with possessions, what the characters do with their possessions and why, these details all are meant to point us to the claim, the purpose of this text and what it means. Meanwhile, as Lot is getting swept up in war. Uh, someone close to him escapes and they go to tell Abram about all the trouble that he's in. And when we're reintroduced to Abram here, we learn right away, he's getting on perfectly fine. <laughs> it's a really interesting contrast. It even says, he was living in the oaks of Mamre, right where God had originally sent him. With Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner, these were allies, it says, of Abram. So, While Lot is getting swept up in the chaos of war, Abram is living at peace in the world, probably even being a blessing as God called him to be and clearly making friends along the way. But as soon as he hears that Lot was captured, Abram fields this platoon of 318 men to go and help. And in like two verses, they defeat all these allied armies and they rescued Lot. Now, just a few things we're supposed to notice about Abram's rescue effort here. First, the thought of 318 men basically ending this complex war with all these nations would be unheard of. Abram basically just left his homeland. Now, a lot of time would have lapsed in the actual historical events, but in the text themselves, we're just two chapters away. He just left his homeland. The author wants us to see he still doesn't even have a single descendant. This is just a collection of his probably his servants and relatives from his household. We already know he's pretty old. And here he is winning a war, right? We should also note the method of their fighting. Notice they did not engage in all-out warfare like everyone else. Chances are because if they did engage in that way, they would have had no chance to win. And so they storm these enemies by night. Do a picture sort of a navy seal sort of a a black ops operation. They kind of wait till it's pitch dark when everyone's fast asleep, kind of drop in, and then they're out, right? This is the kind of thing we're thinking. They were covert. They were scrappy about this. Also want to reflect on Abram's motivation compared to all the others who are fighting, right? Abram does go to battle here. But unlike Lot and unlike these nations, he's not just trying to make a name for himself. He is not caught up in the politics that we read of in verses 1 to 7. He is protecting the interest of God's promise and God's blessing. He's going to get his kinsmen and to recover the blessing that God had given to them for the sake of God's purposes. And finally, I want us to consider the outcome of this intervention. Verse 16, Then he brought back all the possessions. More, even, <laughs> after Sodom was pillaged, more he brings back, and, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions that they got in Egypt, and the women and the people, right? So against all odds, Abram defeats this complex network of nations, and Lot and his blessing is, are recovered, okay? Then we reach the climax of this story, which is a meeting between Abram and And two kings in the valley of kings. Now again, keep your eye on the possessions. The name of this first king is Melchizedek. And it says that he was the king of Salem. Now in ancient history, before the nation of Israel was even founded, the the area which would later become Jerusalem was often referred to as Salem where he's from. And so we have here a king who somehow reigned in the same city where Israel's kings would later reign long, long after this in the story of the Old Testament. That's strange. Not only that, but this Melchizedek is described here as a priest of God Most High, which is also very strange because, again, the nation of Israel hadn't even been established yet. Therefore, you would think at least there was no such thing as a priesthood. That, as well, will come much, much later in the story. We also have to remember that this was not written during Abram's lifetime. Uh, This was written long after. In fact, the earliest writings, at least, of the Pentateuch were likely written probably around the time when the Levitical priesthood was first established, or not long after. So the readers would have understood these things, um, and yet, without explanation, no genealogy, No no historical background, nothing. Here's this mysterious priest king who is clearly not some pagan priest king because when he meets Abram in this valley with a feast of bread and wine, he he interprets the events that just took place and he attributes clearly everything that's just happened to the Lord, to Abram's God. Look with me, it says, blessed be Abram, By God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. In other words, Abram, well done. Congratulations. But you know that was not you who actually won that battle. Remember, it was the Lord. It was the God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the one who's blessed you. The same God that we've been reading of, in these first 13 chapters of Genesis. And so whoever this was, this priest king from Salem, was a representative of Abram's God. And he comes out of nowhere in a strange, unexpected way to remind Abram who really won that battle. Any original reader would have read this and thought, wait a second, who is this guy? Where does this guy come from. Every detail about Melchizedek here is shrouded in mystery. But in response to all this, it simply says, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is where the concept of a tithe comes, to give a tenth. Again, remember, keep your eyes on the possessions. Abram is giving, right? They are a reminder of God's blessing. What people do with them really matters, especially here. Abram is giving them back to God. Now Lot wanted more space so he can keep all his blessings. And to do that, he lived by sight and he went to the land of Sodom. And then he did what? He lost all of his possessions. (laughs) He lost them. Abram lives by faith. He's willing to give his possessions back to God in worship. And next, we're going to see why. Let's look at the king of Sodom and his offer to Abram. And again, keep your eye on the possessions. Remember, Sodom is the land that Lot just chose uh, by sight because it looked like the garden of the Lord. We even read in chapter 13, verse 13, that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The author told us that right up front. So here's their king. Here's their king. And he was just defeated in battle And Abram and his men were the ones who had to step in and save them. So just picture this king sort of sulking into this valley, if you would, right, with his tail between his legs. And he basically says, look, just give me my men back, and you can have the rest of the spoils. It's an offer of blessing. It's an offer of possessions. Now there's an important historical detail we have to consider, especially in this day if you had just uprooted an enemy, and you've done it even in a very covert in somewhat controversial way, maybe that could have been seen as cheating by the rules of the day. um, The day or two after that victory is when you would have been most vulnerable to a retaliation, to another attack. In other words, by earthly standards, it would have been very wise, in fact, probably even taken for granted by most rulers, that, of course, Abraham would, would take this. It's, it's the rightful possession of the guy who wins the battle. But his response is pretty shocking. First, he uses the same language that Melchizedek just used. Uh, so they clearly are on the same page. And Abram says in verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. In other words, he's saying to this king, look, I don't need you to bless me with possessions because my God is the possessor of heaven and earth. All of it belongs to him, and he has already promised to bless me. Think of what this means in light of the whole story we've read. In fact, what he's saying is, uh, my God has promised to give me uh, the land that you currently occupy. Uh, So it's actually important that I not take your offer, uh, because if I did, then you could claim to be responsible for that. For this incredible blessing that my God is about to give to me when I and my descendants conquer your land. It puts a real exclamation point, right? On the message of this story, Abram is turning down the blessing of possessions from the king of Sodom during a pivotal time. Meanwhile, he's also giving up a tenth of his possessions that God has given him. Now, if he is only trying to engage in and actually win the wars of this world, if that was his only motivation, then by most standards, this would have been incredibly foolish. Incredibly foolish. He may have been throwing away the only chance he had at victory. Friends, this is the point of the entire story. Abram fought differently because he understood what I think the author wants us to see today. And that is that our victory has always belonged to the Lord. Doesn't belong to us. Doesn't belong to anyone else who would offered to help us, it belongs to the Lord. I just want you to imagine what this story would have meant later in the history of Israel. As they were wandering in the wilderness, preparing to somehow miraculously conquer this entire promised land. Imagine what this story would have meant to them as they look back on their history. Just imagine what this story would have meant for the men and women who marched around the city of Jericho banging on drums and blowing trumpets because this is how God had told them to fight waiting for those walls to crumble so that they could sweep in and win the victory. Imagine what this story would have meant to the young shepherd boy David when he saw all the grown men of his nation cowering at the sight of Goliath. And he said, Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The story of the Old Testament is filled with examples of the same theme playing itself out over and over. God's people are in an impossible situation. Some kind of earthly conflict they should never expect to win but over and over again God sees to it that they come out the victor. Why? So that his promise and his plan can be carried out. And so that in the end we will all see that the victory has always belonged to him. It did for Abram in his day. It worked this way for Israel throughout the whole story of the Old Testament. And it works this way for us today as followers of Jesus Christ. Now for us, the battle looks quite a bit different than the battles we see described here. Because most of us are not the literal offspring of Abram. We're not ethnic Jews. Uh, we are not on our way to conquer the actual promised land. Uh, therefore, we're not called to wage war against other nations. This is not how we pursue the promise today. We're at a different point in the story of redemption. Not to mention, even if we were Abram's offspring today, this nation has already risen, this nation has already fallen. Turns out, God will not win his ultimate victory over the power of sin through the entire nation of Israel, this Old Testament promise is ultimately leading us, church, to one Israelite man, the son of God himself come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And it is through him that God will bless and redeem all of the families of the earth into a new covenant people. As the author of Hebrews tells us, Christ has come, church, as our priest. He says even in the order of Melchizedek to remind us who our victory ultimately belongs to, but not only that, he has come to accomplish our victory for us. He has come so that we could say with great confidence that our victory belongs to Christ. Like Abram, we do live in a fallen world that's filled with all kinds of chaos and corruption and war. Like Abram, we do worship the God who is setting his creation free from the power of sin. Uh, Like Abram, we are being used by God as we pursue this promise by faith in a different way. And like Abram, we can be sure, as scary as it may get, our victory belongs to him. But Abram never had the kind of confidence that we get to have today. Because Abram never lived to see this God take on human flesh in the person of Christ. Abram never had the privilege of hearing or reading, quote, it is finished. Church, the battle has been won in Christ. The spiritual forces of this world have been conquered. And we have now been sent to declare that good news of his eternal reign and power to the raging nations Of the earth, and this story here needs to shape the way we go about that. This story here needs to shape the way that we pursue victory in a chaotic and fallen world, in the same way that it has shaped the hearts of God's people for many, many centuries. And so, by way of application, I want us to consider three things to remember when there's war in the land. Uh, Three things to remember when the nations rage. It's not easy to remember these things, uh, but I think we see in this passage is very important. The first thing we need to remember is this. First, we are fighting a very different battle. We're fighting a very different battle than everyone else. Uh, We're surrounded by all kinds of fights these days. Again, political battles, culture wars, for example, even increasingly the potential threat of literal war. Many people are sort of rallying the troops, it seems, almost like we see in the first part of our passage today. This group is joining up with that group to fight those groups. We are in a very unique moment in history. Uh, There has never been such sweeping global changes in the way that people communicate, the way that people travel, the way that people work, not to mention the sweeping moral and religious changes as the world becomes increasingly secular. Now, we need to be wise to all that is happening. We cannot just say, well, what battle? What are you talking about? There's no battle. That's true. At the same time, If we are not careful, we can easily get swept up into the front lines of the wrong battle for the wrong reasons. And if Lot is any indication here, we could bet that is not going to end well. We need to see this world through spiritual eyes. Always motivated by the promise and power of God. And if the nations start to rage, it's hard to do. We need to remember our battle is a spiritual battle. Which means it can never be won at the Supreme Court. It does not depend on the legitimacy of our elections. It has nothing to do with democracy at all. It also means it cannot be won by eradicating a virus. It does not depend on masks or vaccine policies, and no government, no matter how efficient and effective, could ever secure this victory that we're after because our battle is spiritual, and the victory has always belonged to the possessor of heaven and earth. Church, let's let this truth sink deep into our hearts today. Let's let it shape the way we view Everything We are fighting a very different battle. Now this inevitably leads to some very pressing questions, right? Like how and to what extent should Christians be engaged in the quote-unquote wars all around us today? Because we are citizens of this country. Uh, And God has called us to be a blessing. We can't just run from all this. And as a pastor, as your pastor, I want you to hear me say, I think this is likely one of the most complex questions of our lifetime. How is this supposed to work in this world? It's been tearing churches apart for the last two years. I expect it to get even more complex if and when we reach some sort of a boiling point. With all the factors and the complex rapid changes and the intensifying conflict, it's, it's, it's not simple. We're going to have to get through this together with a lot of wisdom and a lot of prayer. In many ways, I really hope that I can give us much better and much clearer answers in about two decades. I think, I think that might be the case. Even then, I'm sure it will still be very complicated, but this I know today. As hard as it may be to find our place in the battles of this world, those battles are not the real battle that God has called us to fight in. They're not. Much like in our passage today, those battles waging out there are simply evidence of the invisible spiritual battle that has plagued this creation since the fall. They are an example, frankly, of what Christ has come to rescue us from in large part, and we need to be very careful that we not get swept up into them, like Lot does here. We need to keep our eyes fixed on God and the battles he is fighting to redeem his creation. Now, this is also true on a personal level, even. Our battle is not just a fight for self-esteem. It's not just a fight for enough money or better health or for the respect of those in our field. No, we are in a spiritual battle against the forces of sin, even in our daily lives. We need to be motivated by God's vision for his creation to be filled with his glory through us. So listen, whatever else we may be going through, that is the ultimate struggle we are in. We need to fight accordingly. There's no greater motivation than the glory of this promise-keeping, victory-securing God. And so what battle are you in the midst of today? If we want to experience Christ's victory, then we have to fight the same battle he's fighting. And it is very different than the battles that everyone else is fighting in the rest of the world. It's a spiritual battle. For that reason, next, I also want us to see number two. We need to fight it in very different ways. (laughs) It's a different battle, and it needs to be fought in different ways. According to the age-old wisdom of this world, if you want to win a battle, you need to stockpile weapons, amass as much power and influence as you can, and be utterly ruthless in everything. They'd probably add these days, you also need a really good social media strategy and a lot of money. But here, we learn that if you are joining God in his age-old war against sin, You don't really need any of that. (laughs) You, You don't need it. As Ron read for us in Ephesians earlier in our call to worship, since our battle is not wrestling against flesh and blood, since our battle is a spiritual battle, we need a totally different set of weapons. Our weapons, church, are things like truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, and Prayer. These are the tools we need to use to fight the real war that we're engaged in. Now, these methods may seem really strange to, to many people and, and, and even ineffective to most people. Chances are it's probably because they're fighting a different battle than we are, and, and that's kind of the point. <laughs> right? We need to fight in such a way that makes it crystal clear. Oh, yeah, yeah, we don't expect to win by our strength. The victory has Always belong to the Lord. He is the one who gives it to us. Now, this will require faith, and it sometimes may even feel like we are about to lose the battle, but we won't. And when we think in this way, we have to remind ourselves of Christ, who very much looked like he lost on the cross, and yet he was rescuing us. He was going to get us, like Abram got Lot in this passage. It looked like a loss. But it was the key to victory. If you want to have victory over the power of sin in your life, here's how you find that. It's by confessing and repenting of your sin. Tell someone, member of our church, where you have been at war with God and admit your defeat and surrender. If you want to find victory, it looks like confessing, repenting of sin, trusting in Christ for your forgiveness. Be baptized into his body. Join a local church where you can live according to the ways of his kingdom. Take the Lord's Supper with us on a regular basis. Celebrate our victory. Pray regularly, fervently, and press on. Right? Well, that doesn't seem like it'll do much. I know. (laughs) I know. But when it does, you will see that the victory belongs to the Lord. That's why we fight the way we fight. In the same way, if we want victory over the chaos of sin out there in the world around us, here's how we're going to find it. It's by trusting in Christ. It's by walking humbly with the members of our, our church. It's by growing in our knowledge of God's word and God's ways. It's by knowing and loving our neighbors well. It's by sharing the gospel with them. It's by getting married, maybe, and having some children, loving your spouse well, helping our kids to know and follow Jesus, and probably staying off of Facebook, probably just staying off, right? But the, but the algorithms, the algorithm, they're, they're, they're censoring our voices they're cor- It's fine. It's fine. We're fighting a very different battle. In very different ways. It's not going to be one on Facebook. It's not. But won't we be kind of weird then? How are we going to fit in? Uh, what if we sort of miss all these opportunities out there in the world because we're doing things so differently? Yeah, we may miss out on a number of opportunities from the king of Sodom. Uh, we may look like a puny little platoon of 318 men racing into a world war. I think one of the best things that could ever happen, church, is if Christianity all of a sudden became completely and totally weird again. Because when our kids grow up and God uses them in powerful ways to advance his promise and purpose in the world, everyone will see and not be able to deny that the victory belongs to the Lord like it always has. It wasn't our marketing or our political engagement or our relentless pursuit of self-esteem. No, it was Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen to secure the victory for us. He has delivered the battle into our hands. Church, we we might get the chance to be insignificant, no-name underdogs to the glory of God. And so let's not blow that by fighting like the rest of the world, right? Let's use the weapons God has given us. We need to make sure we're in the right battle. We need to fight in the right ways. Those are both very important. Here's the most important takeaway we have today. Number three, we never need to fear the outcome of the battle. Never. No matter how bad it looks and no matter how bad it gets, when there is war in the land, the last thing we need to do is panic. But but this is happening, and and, and that is happening. What are we going to do? How are we going to win? Right, That right there will lead us to live by sight, and it will lead us to do all kinds of foolish things. We will compromise and accept any blessing from any corrupt king who promises to keep us alive. Listen, we already have a king who has conquered death. We need the confidence then of Paul, who says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will, he also, how, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all the blessings we need? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? The sword, which basically means war. (laughs) No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through who? Through him who loved us. He is where we find the victory, church. Why, for I am sure, Paul continues, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Church, we can have the victory we need over our sin. We can have the victory we need in a chaotic, sin-corrupt world, but we have to understand this. That victory does not belong to us. It doesn't. It never has It never will. It has always belonged to the God of Abram. And his son, church, his son has come and shed his own blood to secure the victory for us forever. And so let's fight the battle he is fighting in the world. Let's fight in the ways that he commands us to fight it. And let's fight in faith, not fear. Because the real war has already been won. And Christ is the victor.